From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We are systematically destroying our land, our streams, and our seas. In 1970, a time of protest against war and discrimination, demonstrators came out to rally for Mother Earth. There was a tremendous wellspring of goodwill among young people who were looking for something to be for after the bloodletting of the Vietnam War demonstrations and so on. And, and the environmental issue was a perfect opportunity. Today there may be fewer picket signs, but environmentalism has become a national and international force. We're taking on the establishment, which has untold amounts of money. Remember, we're talking about oil, coal, cars, and the White House. And we are doing it unbelievably effectively. Earth Day at 35 this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thirty-five years ago, America and the world celebrated the first Earth Day, and a broad social movement began. Environmental awareness has since moved from the margins to the mainstream of society, though some debate the relevance of large U.S. environmental organizations. But there is no doubt things have changed since 1970. We begin our Earth Day coverage today with a report from the Living on Earth archives by Terry Fitzpatrick. If you look at the headlines of 1960, you'd never think America was on the verge of an environmental revolution. If I'm elected president, or whoever may be, as John F. Kennedy was promising a new generation of leadership, he was also stressing the need for economic development, not conservation. The development of the resources of this country to prepare the way for the 300 million people who are going to live here in 40 years, I think, is an essential requirement. But shortly after Kennedy took office, the environment edged into the popular culture. The book Silent Spring revealed the dangers of pesticides. Another book, The Population Bomb, became a bestseller. Musicians like Tom Lear were singing about pollution. If you visit American City, you will find it very pretty. Just two things of which you must beware. Don't drink the water and don't breathe the air. Pollution, pollution, they got smog and sewage and mud. Turn on your tap and get hot and cold running crud. Still, the environmental movement had yet to coalesce. The issues of clean air and water were viewed as intellectual concerns. Banning atomic bomb tests and creating wilderness areas weren't seen as related issues. Activists like Dennis Hayes felt limited. All of this was coming together, but they were separate strands. Nobody sort of put them together in a concerted effort that got them a higher priority in people's minds or linked them all together as being emblematic of a shared set of values. Ironically, one of the crowning technological achievements of the 60s, President Kennedy's space program, would inadvertently provide America with a shared experience that helped inspire the environmental movement. This transmission is coming to you approximately halfway between the moon and the Earth. It was Christmas, and for the first time ever, people could see pictures of the Earth as one planet, a fragile home in a forbidding blackness. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we quote, 
The image of one Earth helped to unify the country, and on April 22, 1970, concern for the health of the planet exploded in an unprecedented display of support. This is a CBS News special, Earth Day, a question of survival, with CBS News correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day was part teach-in, part mass mobilization. Its organizer, Dennis Hayes, spoke at a rally in Washington. We are systematically destroying our land, our streams, and our seas. We foul our air, deaden our senses, and pollute our bodies. That's what America's become. That's what we have to challenge. It was a challenge not everyone was willing to accept. Some quarters saw more than coincidence in the fact that Earth Day occurred on the 100th anniversary of the birth of Lenin, the father of Soviet communism. And the Comptroller General of Georgia, James Bentley, set out $1,600 worth of telegrams warning that Earth Day might be a communist plot. But Earth Day events attracted 20 million participants, more than enough to dispel the critics and create the political momentum that Dennis Hayes was seeking. What we wanted to have was people at the end of it who understood these issues, cared about them passionately, were prepared to vote on the basis of such issues, were prepared to make changes in their own lives and everything from the number of children that they had to the kind of automobile that they drove on the basis of what they learned. It worked. It grabbed the attention of Congress. Leon Billings, then chief of staff for the Senate Air and Water Committees, says Earth Day turned environmentalism into an unstoppable political force. There was a tremendous wellspring of goodwill among young people who were looking for something to be for after the bloodletting of the Vietnam War demonstrations and so on. And, and the environmental issue was a perfect opportunity. Politicians had to support the environmental cause simply to survive, even President Nixon. Because there are no local or state boundaries to the problems of our environment, the federal government must play an active, positive role. We can and will set standards. We can and will exercise leadership. We are providing... Leon Billings says Nixon didn't really care about the environment. What he cared about was the environmental vote which was lining up to support Senator Edmund Muskie's bid to challenge Nixon for president. The whole White House strategy was to try to cut Muskie off from that constituency through preempting the, those issues. We got into one of those wonderful uh, points in American politics where you had political one-upsmanship as between Congress and the president. In short order, this one-upmanship resulted in the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Environmental Protection Agency. All these environmental landmarks were approved in just three years. The early 70s had become an environmental renaissance. The environment was even the province of musical superstars. Suddenly, here was a movement in which a, a middle-class housewife 
who had never done anything activist before in her life, but cared passionately about the kind of world she was passing on to her kids, there was a role in this one for her. Dennis Hayes and other activists won praise from all directions, even Republicans, like William Ruckelshaus, head of the newly formed EPA. As a society, we owe a debt to those who have made the environment a call to action. They are, for the most part, sincere, dedicated, and fair-minded advocates of environmental responsibility. But it wasn't an unbroken string of environmental victories. There were major defeats. The first big fight under the Endangered Species Act was lost when Congress approved a dam that wiped out a fish called the snail darter. In the wake of the OPEC oil embargo, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was approved. As the 70s drew to a close, environmentalism had lost some of its magic. But then came Love Canal. An unusual hostage incident is underway in Niagara Falls, New York tonight. No weapons are involved as two officials of the Environmental Protection Agency are being held against their will by members of the Love Canal Homeowners Association at the group's headquarters. The two hostages are... Dr. Residents James of Lewis Niagara Falls, America's honeymoon capital, were getting sick because of chemical leaks from the Love Canal dump site. Angry homeowners were fighting back. This was a blue-collar town. People like Lois Gibbs hadn't been part of the environmental consciousness that swept the country. When I lived in Niagara Falls, and we smelled chemicals, and we had black clouds, we had brown clouds, we had white clouds. I mean, it was terrible. We smelled that, and we thought, good economy. We didn't think air pollution, poison, because we didn't understand, because nobody was talking about it at our level. But soon, the entire nation was talking about toxic waste. This was just the first of many communities to learn that chemical dumping could threaten human health. Love Canal was evacuated, so was Times Beach, Missouri. Then, the Superfund list was developed, detailing America's worst hazardous waste sites. The release of the list woke up America in a way that they had never been woken up before, because every local paper took the list and talked about the sites in their community. And so people really became concerned. They saw their, their self-interest, and they wanted something done immediately. Lois Gibbs founded a clearinghouse to help others who were fighting toxic dump sites. It was the beginning of a second wave of environmental awareness among working class people. None of us were trained organizers. None of us had any experience in even being an environmentalist. If you were to ask my neighbors today if they were an environmentalist, they would say no. What we're about is fighting for justice. Other events continued to strengthen support for the environment, most notably the nuclear power accident at Three Mile Island. But suddenly, in 1981, the movement was on the defensive. Ronald Reagan took over the White House. To Reagan, environmental groups were special interests that hurt the economy. It was time for business to have a stronger voice. Leading the charge was Secretary of the Interior James Watt. Businessmen pay taxes. Business people have rights. All Americans won in November, and those liberals from the special interest groups are furious that the positions of power have been opened up to America for Americans, and that's our objective. Watt wanted to roll back environmental programs and open more public lands to things like mining and grazing. But the Reagan revolution foundered when it came to the environment. Congress was unwilling to water down the landmark legislation that Leon Billings had helped to craft a decade before. We 
survived the Reagan-Watt era, these policies survived because of their militancy. People, the American public, saw what they were proposing as too radical. Watt unwittingly helped his opponents. He showed a remarkable lack of political finesse, such as this comment when announcing his appointments to a federal commission. I appointed the Lenos Commission, five members, three Democrats, two Republicans. Uh, every kind of mix you can have. I have a black, I have a woman, two, two Jews, and a cripple. And, uh... <laughs> Watt undermined the administration's credibility on environmental policy. Even Vice President George Bush distanced himself from the Reagan record. In his run for the White House in 1988, Bush said he'd be the environmental president. Later, events like the Exxon Valdez oil spill hardened public resolve to protect the environment. But as the movement approached its 20th anniversary, activists were worried by the lesson they'd learned during the Reagan years, that legislative gains are vulnerable to changing political tides. Dennis Hayes was steering the emphasis of Earth Day 1990 toward a broader societal goal and away from a focus on government. There was a widespread correct perception that some of those laws had not worked terribly well and that we probably had to do some things that affected the culture, affected the society in ways other than, than by placing legal restrictions and regulatory restrictions upon them, something that reached into people's behavior. We have three types of trash bins around. They're not hard to miss. We have one for aluminum only, one for bottles, and one for just trash. So help us trash your trash. Thanks. That report from Terry Fitzpatrick. The evolution of environmentalism from individual action to global responsibility is just ahead. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. When the 1990s began, the focus of Earth Day started to shift from protecting the environment of our nation to protecting the environment of our planet as a whole. John Adams was the very first employee and co-founder of the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, which began at the same time as the first Earth Day. He's now president of the NRDC, which has since grown to more than 100 lawyers and scientists and a million members. John Adams and the NRDC are credited with successfully lobbying such seminal pieces of environmental legislation as the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. Hello, John. Hello. How are you today? Um, John, you've been an environmental activist for as long as there's been an Earth Day. Um, how has the event changed since the environmental achievements of the 70s and the backlash of the 80s? Uh, what's been its trajectory uh, since 1990 over these past 15 years? Well, we really are on the same march. We're looking at it from a different perspective, but it's the same march. It seems to me that we've learned about the big problems and all of us have tried to face up to these big problems like global warming and the energy issues and the ocean issues and biodiversity. And so it's understanding these complex systems uh, that has changed uh, our work and I think uh, the work of our efforts on Earth Day. Now, this year, your organization, NRDC, is attempting to leverage Earth Day to generate public support for alternative energy sources. Uh, what are you calling your campaign? I think it's Re-Energize America. That's right. And my question is, how effective is Earth Day for focusing attention on environmental issues? Well, it's amazing. I mean, the fact that uh, you're interviewing me here and there will be uh, millions of people around the world talking about these issues. In fact, I think... 
this Earth Day, I see and feel more energy than I have felt in perhaps the last five or ten years of Earth Days. It just uh, people are very concerned and very aware that the things that we need to be doing to protect our world are not happening, and they want it to happen. And that's what this Earth Day is all about. What do you think is catalyzing people now? Why the difference over the last five or ten years? Well, I think the, uh, the catalyst is that people are recognizing that we're having a weird weather, that we are seeing heat, storms. We're seeing the snows of Kilimanjaro, a thing of history. We're reading and seeing the pictures of the melting Arctic and hearing that polar bears may not be around in 25 or 30 years unless we get snapping. Why did you pick alternative energy as the focus of Earth Day for your organization? Very simple. We think that global warming is absolutely critical here, and the message has to go out. It's essential that we move into the field of high technology for several reasons. One, national security. Uh, We need to get ourselves out of places where war is going to take this huge toll to uh, get our oil. Uh, We need to think about our jobs and job security. And it's very important that we turn to new technology that will help us get to solving our global warming problem. Now, your organization and your involvement with the environmental movement are as old as Earth Day itself. What are your memories of that first event? Well, you know, I have such fond memories. Uh, I was alone yet at NRDC. Uh, I was still the only employee and the only member. And I remember meeting uh, with the Friends of the Earth people and the Sierra Club people, the chapter here in New York, and uh, had a celebration together. It was very, very much of a, a family affair, and I was being welcomed in to that very small family. John, we've heard a lot this year about the so-called death of environmentalism, that the movement has somehow fallen out of touch with mainstream Americans. How valid is that criticism? Well, you know, criticism is always valuable. Uh, You do learn a lot, and it makes you think through what people are saying. Personally, I think that the environmental movement is far from dead. I mean, just... Look at the scope of the memberships. Take a look at the size of the land trusts and take a look at what's going on locally in every community across the board from recycling to purchases of parks and so on. It's just impossible for anybody to believe that environmentalism is dead. More importantly, on the key issues, uh, we're taking on the establishment which has untold amounts of money Remember, we're talking about oil, coal, cars, and the White House. And we are doing it unbelievably effectively. We have been able to block a bad energy bill. We've been able to get 43 United States senators to support the McCain-Lieberman bill. And McCain-Lieberman, of course, is the legislation proposed by those two senators that would put uh, mandatory limits on greenhouse gas emissions. Exactly. Now, in the past, uh, John Adams, you've been an advisor to President Clinton and the Environmental Protection Agency. How much influence does the environmental movement have these days with uh, politicians, national politicians, and the public at large? Uh, I think that we have a lot of influence uh, with the politicians because I think we've earned their respect. Uh, We don't have an 
open avenue into the White House, though we do know uh, the various uh, people who head the agencies, and they hear our voice. So while it's not as uh, easy a relationship as we had with President Clinton or with George Bush the first, it's uh, the message can be sent there. We obviously work with lots of United States senators and uh, congressmen because we're professionals in the field, and they want to hear from us. And we have uh, we have a very very strong scientific staff, as does the rest of the environmental movement. And in terms of governors, uh, with the problems with the administration. We turn to the states, and uh, I would say that uh, the the environmental movement has penetrated the political structure of this country very, very well in a very straightforward, business-like way. In your view, how could a public official be against the environment, something that uh, arguably a lot of people uh, believe in and feel that it's important to, to protect the, the living systems that uh, make the ecology uh, work on this planet? You know, I think if you were talking to those senators or those congressmen, most of them would say they're not opposed to the environment. They just want to do it a different way. Those of us who have seen it done a different way and have worked our way through the process of establishing laws and rules and regulations that have made this country uh, one of the leaders in the world, and indeed, we were the leader in the world uh, when we had strong enforcement of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. They wish to make it easier for business to do business without paying the true cost of the impact on the environment. We can't have that. We don't want to return to the 1970s. And we don't want to be like Eastern Europe was under the old Soviet Union. It's very important to protect these laws for all of us and for our generations to come. John Adams is the president of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate it. For the first time in history, more people on the planet live in cities than anywhere else. So it's appropriate that World Environment Day, which was established by the United Nations in 1972, should bring together mayors of cities from around the world. At the beginning of June, these mayors will gather to sign a group of accords that will, in their words, help build a sustainable, dynamic, and equitable future for citizens around the world. With me now is Gavin Newsom. He's mayor of San Francisco, which is hosting this five-day event, the first American city to ever do so. So, uh, Mr. Mayor, why was San Francisco chosen to host World Environment Day this year? Well, I'd like to think it's because we are in every way, shape, and form ahead of the curve in terms of environmental um, initiatives. That being said, I imagine it had as much or more to do with the fact that uh, we also are celebrating the 60th anniversary of the signing and founding of the U.N., of course, which was done here in San Francisco. So uh, it's a a wonderful opportunity to talk about best practices and relates to the environment, but also it's a wonderful celebration of the founding of the U.N. 
What do you expect to come out of this? Well, I think the most significant thing is the signing of these urban environmental accords and, and the feedback we've gotten from mayors and, and their staffs that we've sent these accords to is, is overwhelming uh, with enthusiasm. And it just establishes a, a new precedent where we can either sit back and wait for our respective governments to get aggressive and recognize the challenges of global warming and, and, and the real challenges of global warming, the challenges of the environment generally, uh, or we can actually be proactive and lead by example. For example? Well, I'd like to see cities really focus on their recycling efforts. San Francisco uh, has 63% recycling rate. Our goal is to get up to 75% in just a few years. I think renewable energies, the opportunity for sustainable economies. Uh, we talk about an energy policy in this country. Well, it's all talk. It's all rhetoric. The reality is we don't really have one. And I think it's incumbent, again, upon cities to lead by examples. Because I'm not, as mayor, I don't want to wait 20, 30 years uh, until these things evolve. We've got to take action and we've got to fight against the status quo. To what extent do mayors have a bigger stake in environmental issues than other politicians? Well, I think it's a direct stake. Again, I mean, you look at, you know, it's San Francisco, is, you know, it enjoys some of the most scenic uh, beauty of any major city in the world. I go down to Los Angeles and I see smog everywhere. And uh, there's something fundamental about that. And immediately the mayor of Los Angeles is burdened with that reality. So I think, again, you can talk globally, but you've got to proverbially act locally. And what's at stake is actually making things different, making things better. And increasingly, mayors around the world have the power to do that. Who is, uh, who is coming here? I understand that you have the mayor of Kabul in Afghanistan, uh, yeah. uh, mayors in Africa, uh, South America. These are very different places than the United yeah, States. Yeah, well, it's absolutely incredible. We've, you know, from Belarus, from Cambodia, from India, Indonesia, Iran, Italy. I mean, all over the map, literally and figuratively. And, of course, mayors from across the United States of America. And that's what's so dynamic and so extraordinary about this is the different perspectives, the different challenges where water may be the the dominant issue, for example, in a third world country, uh, uh, the opportunity for that mayor to learn about uh, what we're doing, for example, with one of the cleanest water sources in the world, our Hachetchi water system here in San Francisco, but to also learn from the mayor of Manila about what they're doing on issues of, of energy and open space, uh, and that we can take that back here in our respective cities. So this is a pretty incredible opportunity uh, just to meet, greet, but also uh, uh, represent our, our city's best and our city's worst in terms of the challenges we have. When you invite the world's mayors to a city, it's, it's, it's quite a do, and I'm sure you've been, <laughs> at, you've been at this for a while. Yeah. What have you already learned? I've just been amazed by the responsiveness of mayors and, and how eager and enthusiastic they are, and that's, that's very humbling uh, and very encouraging. Gavin Newsom is mayor of San Francisco and host of this year's World Environment Day in June. And by the way, Living on Earth will be broadcasting from there in cooperation with member station KQED. And if you'd like to be involved in World Environment Day, details are on our website, livingonearth.org. This is the Violin Concerto of Ludwig von Beethoven a favorite piece of music of a woman without whose work and dedication there might be no Earth Day. I didn't know what to do. All that was clear to me was that the information had to get out. People had no understanding of the risks they were being asked to take. We'd all been made so well aware of the benefits of these pest controls. But why had no one 
alerted us to their potential dangers. I decided to write the book. Rachel Carson called her book Silent Spring. Silent Spring because Ms. Carson wanted us to consider what our world would be like without the sounds of nature. Published in 1962, Silent Spring sounded the alarm about an ever-expanding technological society and called to arms the fledgling environmental movement. To mark this Earth Day, we asked writer and actress Kailani Lee to read a few passages from her one-woman play based on the life and writings of Rachel Carson. It's called A Sense of Wonder. In Lansing, Michigan, there was a study linking the death of the robin population to the spraying of the elm trees. The elms, which were being treated for Dutch elm disease, were sprayed in the spring and again in July with two to five pounds of DDT per tree. In the autumn, the leaves fell, and as they decomposed, the earthworms fed on them, accumulating and concentrating the DDT in their bodies. Some of the earthworms died, but those that survived became biological magnifiers of the poison. In the spring, the robins returned to Lansing, Michigan, and they ate the worms. Eleven large earthworms can transfer a lethal dose of DDT to a robin. A robin can eat eleven worms in as many minutes. Not all the robins ate a lethal dose, but the few that survived were unable to produce a single living offspring. How did we get to this? I knew that by writing honestly about chemical contamination, I was plunging myself into a sort of war with the chemical industry. But I never imagined the full force of the industry's fury. Hundreds of thousands of dollars have been spent attempting to discredit not only the book, but the hysterical woman who wrote it. Fortunately, the attack seemed to have backfired, creating more publicity than my publishers ever could have afforded. But the controversy has been exhausting. Is it any wonder I don't want to leave the state of Maine? To stand here at the edge of the sea, to sense the ebb and flow of the tides, to feel the breath of a mist over the great salt marsh, to watch the flight of shorebirds that have swept up and down these continents for untold thousands of years, to see the running of the old eels and the young shad to the sea, is to have knowledge of things that are as nearly eternal as any earthly life can be. I'll never forget the night Mr. Sean telephoned me. William Sean is the editor of the New Yorker magazine. He had just read my manuscript and he telephoned saying everything I could have asked or hoped for. That night after Roger was asleep, I came back in here and I, I put on the Beethoven Violin Concerto. It's one of my favorites. And suddenly, the tension of the four years was broken, 
and I let the tears come. And that night the thoughts of all the birds and the other creatures, all the loveliness that is in nature came to me with such a surge of deep happiness. I had done what I could. I had been able to complete it, and now it has its own life. Hayolani Lee reading from her play A Sense of Wonder, based on Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and Under the Sea Wind, as well as material from the Carson biography The House of Life by Paul Brooke. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Verizon, providing 411 directory assistance for residential and business numbers locally or across the country. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And coming up, what if intelligent life from across the universe blasted the Earth to bits to make way for an intergalactic freeway? Could we find another Earth? Douglas Adams, creator of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, had some answers. But first, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. The best part of waking up may no longer be the Folgers in your cup. In fact, it may be the sound of an alarm clock. A group of sleep-deprived students at Brown University have invented a new alarm clock to help combat typical AM inertia. Recent studies suggest that sleepers suffer from the worst case of morning blues or grogginess when woken during deep sleep versus light. Sleep Smart measures your sleep cycle and wakes you during the lightest phase of sleep so you feel refreshed in the morning. Here's how it works. After programming a special clock to your latest possible wake-up time, you go to sleep wearing a headband outfitted with electrodes and a microprocessor. The headband records the pattern of brain waves produced during each phase of sleep, light sleep, deep sleep, and rapid eye movement, or REM sleep. This sleep information is passed wirelessly to the clock unit, which then triggers the alarm to sound during the light sleep phase closest to your wake-up time. So rather than waking you at exactly 7 o'clock each morning, Sleep Smart will ring during your light sleep, say 30 minutes before that time. The alarm clock is the brainchild of a Brown University graduate student, who was inspired when a fellow student blamed grogginess for his poor grades. A warning to Starbucks, the finished product will hit stores sometime next year. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. Hold on to your hat and grab a towel because one week after Earth Day, the planet, at least on the big screen, will become intergalactic asphalt. From the celebrated best-selling novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What is this thing? It's the guide. It's got everything you need to know to survive in the universe. What's that? Losing your planet Ah! isn't the end of the world. It's the beginning of an adventure unlike anything on Earth.
It's this far-out adventure that's earned its creator, the late Douglas Adams, the adoration of millions of fans around the world. The friends of Douglas Adams saw a bit of him in all the characters he wrote into his stories, from the extraordinarily ordinary Arthur Dent to the ultra-hit man about space Ford Prefect. What many people might not know is that not only did Douglas Adams write for the Monty Python troupe, he was also a conservationist. And underneath all the absurdity of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an environmental message. Robbie Stamp was a business partner and close friend of Adams for years. He's also executive producer of the much-anticipated movie version of the series. And he joins me now to talk about Douglas Adams' vision for the planet. Robbie Stamp, hello. Hi there. So I understand the two of you are great friends. How did you meet? We met, I was, a, I was a documentary producer, in fact, an environmental documentary producer. I'd, I'd been producing a series of, of, of different films on different environmental subjects. And a mutual friend introduced us. And we just got on really well. I mean, from the first time we met, we, we enjoyed each other's company. And uh, I was lucky enough to go on to both become a, a close personal friend and uh, start a company with Douglas as well. Now, before Douglas Adams died, he was working on a screenplay for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it finally is going to come now to the big screen. So let's just hear a bit of a of the trailer here for Kicks. Attention, people of Earth. I regret to inform you that in order to make way for the new hyperspace express route, your planet has been scheduled for demolition. Have a nice day. Hang on, we're hitching a ride. A galactic superhighway paves over the world. It definitely sounds like an environmental story. <laughs> well, I think there's, uh, I think, I think there were, there were, there were a couple of core strands really that underlay Douglas's worldview. I mean, one was a was a deeply held wish that humankind, the human species, have a little bit more humility about its place in the grand scheme of things than uh, than it seems to. And the other was a deep reverence and awe for the beauties and wonders of you know what we do have on this little lump of rock. So what's the environmental plot then, or perhaps subplot of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, I mean, it's nice to be doing this interview because I haven't, I haven't done too many interviews on this subject and I've always felt it was a subject very, very close to Douglas's heart. I mean, I suppose that, that if there is an environmental or a conservation subplot in Hitchhikers and certainly there in the movie, it's that, you know, unusually in, in, in a movie uh, of this kind, the Earth gets blown up within the first nine minutes. I mean, normally people are you know, racing to, to save the Earth and they manage to save it. Well, in this instance, they don't. But what we have, at the end of the movie is we, we have a, a, a backup Earth. Um, there is another Earth that's been built by these planet builders when we discover that, in fact, the original Earth was a, a giant computer built to calculate the ultimate question. Uh, and we have another Earth and we get another shot at it. And I think there's something really quite powerful and redemptive about that thought as we see life springing back at the end of the movie. And I think it, it's very gently done, but it is just a, a gentle message which says, you know, take care of what we've got because it's fragile and, you know, you can't count on it being here forever. And what is the answer, by the way, to the ultimate question? Well, we don't know the ultimate question, but we do. Well, I mean, the, the answer to life, the universe, and everything was famously 42, which, of course, didn't make a lot of sense. And the computer that calculated that deep thought said, well, it would have helped if I knew what the question was. And, uh, and that, so it was the... It was, it was the it was, and it is one of the great iconic things about Hitchhikers, um, 42. I tell you a little, little story here. For movies, you do a thing called tracking, which is you, you're keeping a very close eye on how many people want to come and see your movie. 
and I was talking to the marketing guys yesterday about this, and they said that the uh, there's a ve- we've had a very very high number indeed, which we're really impressed by. We don't normally see numbers quite this good at this stage of a movie, and it's the number of people who say they are definitely going to come and see the movie, and it was 42 percent of the people that they asked. Which I thought was great. I, and, and I said the tax code, the tax code that that we're using help in uh, to make the movie over here in the UK is section 42. There's a lot of these 42 coincidences. Poor old Douglas, it was just a joke, but they crop up everywhere. So Douglas Adams uh, fans, of course, know him for the Hitchhiker's uh, Guide to the Galaxy uh, and uh, the various books and, and, and shows that came uh, as, as sequels. But he also did this book um, called Last Chance to See. And um, I guess despite the topic, which is about endangered species, it certainly has a fair amount of wit in it. And... Um, Robbie Stamp, you have a copy of the book with you now, and, and there are some favorite passages of yours that I'd like you to read to us right now. Could you? Please? Yeah, I have. I, I've chosen these because I think they really sum up for me a lot of what makes Douglas special, not just in terms of uh, the thinking about the endangered species, but what I think was special about his capacity to make us think about things in a different way. And uh, here he is in, in Africa, and he's having a, a close encounter uh, with a silverback gorilla uh, in the Virunga, the Virunga Hills. I crept closer to the silverback, slowly and quietly, on my hands and knees, till I was about 18 inches away from him. He glanced around at me unconcernedly, as if I was just someone who'd walked into the room and continued his contemplations. As I moved again, he shifted himself away from me, just about six inches, as if I'd sat slightly too close to him on a sofa, and he was grumpily making a bit more room. Then he lay on his front with his chin on his fist, idly scratching his cheek with his other hand. I sat as quiet and still as I could, despite discovering that I was being bitten to death by ants. (laughs) After a quiet interval had passed, I carefully pulled the pink writing paper out of my bag and started to make the notes that I'm writing from at the moment. This seemed to interest him a little more. I suppose he'd simply never seen pink writing paper before. His eyes followed as my hand squiggled across the paper, and after a while he reached out and touched first the paper and then the top of my ballpoint pen, not to take it away from me or even to interrupt me, just to see what it was and what it felt like. I felt very moved by this and had a foolish impulse to want to show him my camera as well. He retreated a little and lay down again about four feet from me with his fist once more propped under his chin. The most disconcerting intelligence seemed to be apparent from the sidelong glances he would give me, prompted not by any particular move I'd made, but apparently by a thought that had struck him. I began to feel how patronising it was of us to presume to judge their intelligence, as if ours was any kind of standard by which to measure. I tried to imagine instead how he saw us, but of course that's almost impossible to do, because the assumptions you end up making as you try to bridge the imaginative gap are, of course, your own and the most misleading assumptions are the ones you don't even know you're making. But somehow, in the genetic history that we each carry with us in every cell of our body was a deep connection with this creature, as inaccessible to us now as last year's dreams, but, like last year's dreams, always invisibly and unfathomably present. Why did you pick that? Well, I picked that because, A, I know from talking to Douglas that he, he always described that encounter with the, with, the, with the silverback gorilla as one of the most amazing moments of his life. But also because I think it sums up a lot of what makes him special intellectually. I mean, he, his writing, that phrase, actually, that he, he talks about, the imaginative gap and the most misleading assumptions are the ones you don't even know you're making. I think that, that Douglas was a great one for, for, for giving us different mental models for thinking of the world. I talked earlier about his desire that we should all have a little bit more humility. One 
one of the great images I remember him using quite frequently when he spoke um, uh, was of a puddle. And he says, a puddle wakes up one morning and it looks around at the hole in which it is and it thinks, gosh, this hole fits me very nicely. In fact, in fact this hole must have been made just specially for me. <laughs> and, it, and, and it continues to think so as the sun comes out and, and dries it up. And I think Douglas felt a little bit the same about, you know, our worldview where we look around at, you know, the world that seems to fit us and thinks, gosh, well, this has been made just specially for us, hasn't it? Uh, and I think that, that, that way of challenging assumptions, making, making us think again about things, and I think that's something that runs absolutely through Hitchhikers. Now, we were able to find some old recordings of Douglas Adams himself reading from this book, Last Chance to See. And, you know, as with movies themselves, sometimes the outtakes are funnier than the actual cut that gets shown to the public. So let's take a listen. Now, you may think that uh, I've managed to read this book very, very impressively, perfectly, without any errors, all the way through. Uh, I have to tell you, this is by no means the case. And here, for your amusement, uh, is a compilation of some of the things we missed out. That's actually uh, the reason I'm having difficulties is about the written sentence. And they get terribly upset if they hear the words they don't understand the meaning of. They think it's all a communist plot. Never mind. Fuck it. Ah! Better! Oh! Ooh, 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 ooh. Ah! Fuck! Did I swallow something here? Was discovered in the... One black rhino in Kenya caught me off guard once and severely dented a car's friend. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, well, there we go. That's a very fine set of outtakes. <laughs> now, Robbie Stamp, is this uh, what you would call uh, rather normal behavior for this famous Oh, I recognize Douglas, Douglas. It's always lovely to hear his voice, and I certainly recognize Douglas in that, the, uh, the, 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 the humor and the wit and the language. No, I, I certainly recognize Douglas there. <laughs> um, speaking of, uh, of hijinks, his hijinks, I understand there was an incident in a rhino costume. Yeah, I mean, Douglas was a was a patron of of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund and and Save the Rhino International, and uh, he went on a sponsored walk wearing a rhino costume in Kenya. I don't know sort of whether he did any of the really steep bits of Mount Kilimanjaro, um, but he certainly walked along the road in great heat wearing a rhino costume. I mean, you know, he really <laughs> he put himself. I mean, he was a big man, six foot five. It was hot. I mean, this was really this was this was very definitely going the extra mile. Robbie Stamp was a co-founder with Douglas Adams of the production company Digital Village. He's also executive producer of the new movie Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I suppose I should say so long and thanks for the fish. <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me. I really hope we've done Douglas proud. And now these thoughts. Being human is a risky business. In fact, genetic research suggests that perhaps 70,000 years ago, there were only about 2,000 of us humans alive, and we were just a hoot and holler away from the drought or plague that would have meant extinction. Now, of course, at 6 billion and climbing, there are other risks, and Kate Revilius, a writer for the British newspaper The Guardian, recently asked 10 scientists what they think might get us into trouble in the next century. She asked them to consider both the gravity of the threat and its likelihood. It's likely, one responded, that we'll have a global viral pandemic, but it is unlikely to wipe out the human species. 
All-out nuclear war is a far graver threat, said another scientist, but the odds of it happening before the end of the century are low. On the other hand, climate change is likely to happen to a significant extent, although the Guardian scientists didn't think it would delete humanity, just civilization as we know it. But there is something that has an even greater combined risk of danger and likelihood than climate change, and this one was a surprise to me. The Guardian quotes Hans Moravec at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh as saying there's a good chance robots could take over things before 2100. Robot controllers double in complexity, that is, processing power, every year or two, says Professor Moravec. They are now barely at the lower range of vertebrate complexity, but should catch up with us within half a century. By 2050, I predict there will be robots with human-like mental power, with the ability to abstract and generalize, he says. So uh, while you may have joked that a cranky police officer or a high school principal was an android, what would it be like to have the real thing? Uncompromising robotic voicemail systems already provide a taste of what could be coming. So is there any good news here? The self-awareness of our species means that we can, in fact, take action to address dire but distant threats. Environmental advocates have succeeded in sounding the alarm about climate change, and already billions are being spent and invested in response. Even if governments are still squabbling about the details and dimensions of the problem, citizens are already snapping up climate-sparing hybrid cars and planting trees. The signs are good that these efforts could not only blunt the worst effects of climate disruption, but they might become powerful drivers of job creation and prosperity as well. So then, what about the robots? During the last two decades, activism has brought down the Berlin Wall, freed Nelson Mandela from prison to lead a multiracial South Africa, and set the world on the path of confronting global warming. So don't be surprised to see green activism doing its part to make sure robots are used to make us more human rather than less. Robots may eventually do some things better than humans, such as long-distance travel in space, but they can never replace the feeling of joy that is life itself. Next week on Living on Earth, the gasoline additive MTBE is tainting water supplies around the country, and the energy bill would shield the chemical makers from lawsuits. MTBE killed the last energy bill, and Senate Democrats say it could do it again. These folks don't quit. They don't learn. And we're going to have a bipartisan coalition fighting the MTBE provisions, which is one of the most pernicious that's come around in a long time. The energy bill at risk of running out of gas. That's next time on Living on Earth. One minute and counting. T-minus 55 seconds and counting. We leave you this week at Kennedy Space Center in Florida on March 3rd, 1969. We're now on internal power uh, with the three stages in this... Apollo 9 readies for liftoff as it begins its 10-day mission. The spacecraft was the first manned flight of all the lunar hardware in Earth orbit. 35 seconds and counting. The vehicle now completely pressurized. The vents closed. We are go. 30 seconds and counting. T-minus 25 seconds and counting. All aspects still go at this time as the computer monitors. 20 seconds. Guidance released. 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, we have ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Commit. Liftoff. We have liftoff at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Follow nine, you are go all the way. Everything looks good. Roger. 
Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Steve Gregory, and Ingrid Lobet, with help from Christopher Bolick, James Kerwood, and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Katie Oliveri and Katie Zemseff. Our technical director is Paul Wabrek. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of Emerging Science and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.